Turn once again to the book of Jude. We're going to use that as our, uh, at least our jumping off point once again. And if you get there to the little book of Jude, second to last book of the Bible, Jude, then Revelation. And uh, we will just read a verse or two here. If you get there, please stand as we read our text. I'm going to read just verses 2 and 3 of the book of Jude. Mercy unto you and peace and love be multiplied. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we come before you again and we ask for living bread. Lord, we ask for food for our souls. Lord, you've inspired this book. You've ordained the preaching of it. But even there, Lord, we're dependent upon thy moving, thy power. I pray, Lord, you'd put another layer of block in your spiritual building today. Father, I lift up also those that are sick, fighting sickness. Maybe some here are still fighting sickness or those that couldn't be here because of it. Heal their body, Lord. Give them rest of soul. And we thank you, Lord, that you do heal us. You are the God that heals the body and especially the soul. Help us, Lord, to be strengthened this morning. We pray, Lord, you would be pleased as you sit here as the real audience this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, we've been spending a little bit of time meditating on this uh, statement, the third verse of the book of Jude, uh, when he talks about the need to earnestly contend for the faith. And what we're talking about is the need for a balanced position on our understanding of what that means. Uh, once again, as the apostasy or the falling away uh, from the truth of the Word of God continues, like the Word of God says it will, as the end times approach, there's going to be this massive sellout uh, from among the ranks of Christendom. And the Bible depicts this in no small detail in passages in the Old as well as the New Testament. And as we see that happening more and more, and there's evidence of it for sure on every hand of those that are looking, there's going to be an increasing pressure uh, to go to one of two extremes. Either to do away with the needed contention at all, to adopt sort of a positive-only message. Uh, we're just too loving to deal with error here. We just, we just love so much that we won't uh, warn against false teachers. Uh, may I remind you that that actually is not biblical love. If you stand here as a parent and say, I love my child, then I guarantee you hate that which would destroy your child. You can't love your child without hating the plague that would come through and take their life. And may I say, you can't really love the Lord's people without hating the soul-damning error that would drag them off into eternity. So, love really cannot exist without the right kind of hatred. I mean, the plain text of what Jude is saying, as well as multitude of other passages that lend their voice, Again, talks about the need to uh, exhort, encourage one another through word, through preached sermons, through shaking each other up to, to, uh, to be sober, to be awake to the necessity to earnestly contend for the New Testament faith because it always is under attack. Okay, that's one side of balance you can get positive only where you can get off track. The other is to be totally consumed with the negative. To spend so much energy playing defense uh, that all forward vision and positive growth are lost. Where the Great Commission turns into the Great Retreat. Uh, most of you have heard me say this. And it's an illustration I'm going to keep bringing up because I hope, I hope it gets ingrained in our mind. The negative aspects of teaching, and understand when I say negative, I'm not saying things that shouldn't be said. But the necessary parts of teaching that we could call negative, uh, whether you're talking about uh, training children, correcting them by word or by deed, uh, whether you're talking about uh, correcting adults 
through preaching or through uh, verbal conversation. Uh, if you're talking about warning against false teaching and apostates and the end times and, and harassing certain sins that are a danger of falling into, all of those things that could fall into the category of negative, the negative side of teaching are like pruning a rose bush. They're very necessary to prevent the wrong kind of growth. They have to happen. But the other side of that is pruning is only effective in an atmosphere of constant sunshine and rainfall and nutrients. In other words, a plant has to be healthy to be able to bear much pruning. And a steady diet that consists mostly of pruning. Friends, none of us can bear that. It doesn't matter if it's parenting, if it's being a husband or wife, if it's being a friend, a pastor, a Bible teacher. Any one of those realms, the pruning is only really effective in an atmosphere where real growth and spiritual nutrition is an ongoing thing. There has to be a balanced diet. I've mentioned many times, and again I'll say it, I covet your prayers. Let me tell you something. As a pastor in this century in America, there is immense pressure to go one of those two ways. And it's there all the time. I pray that we can maintain a balanced diet as we go through the whole counsel of God together. So what we've been doing is walking through principles of earnestly contending for the faith, taken from multiple other passages. Last time we talked about one of them. And just by way of quick review, it was recognizing that there are different levels of importance. Uh, that seems basic enough, but I think it's important to maintain that in our mind at a practical level. Not all theological differences demand the same response or even any immediate response at all. Uh, there are degrees of importance. Now, admittedly, that's not always easy to sort out. It's not. There are judgment calls that have to be made, and none of us, especially in a leadership position, are going to be flawless on that. It's a constant learning process. And it's not always easy to put these uh, all into play correctly. And there's plenty of times where the Lord corrects me afterwards, and I see where I was wrong, and I thank God for that. And I think... Uh, many of you would have the same mindset. You want to be corrected. You want to keep going. There's not just uh, two categories, important and unimportant. Uh, what happens is, of course, either someone gravitates towards where almost nothing is of vital importance. Nothing's worth contending over. Nothing should be delineated clearly enough to let people be able to understand. Or, of course, the other way would be to get into the position where everything is worth fighting over. Neither one of those are true scripturally. So, instead, the New Testament, especially by precept, by the example set by Christ and the apostles, is the closer an error comes to attacking the major pillars of the gospel, or the doctrines concerning the person and work of Christ, uh, the greater the response becomes. I mentioned before, using the word apostate is no light thing. That's a serious word. Not all compromise is apostasy. Not all heresy is apostasy. You understand what I'm saying? Apostasy, as shown in the New Testament, an apostate is somebody who's come from within a position they formerly held that seemed orthodox, at least by mouth, and now they've come out militantly against the major doctrines of the Christian faith, primarily the person and the work of Christ. That's, that's what Jude is immediately talking about in the context. Remember these guys came in unawares. They're teaching grace as a form of license. They're teaching attacks on the substitutionary death of Christ. Total heresy about God the Father. And of course, uh, the response was a nuclear one. Apostates are clearly defined in the New Testament, but not every single error. In fact, most errors don't fit into that category. That brings us to principle number two. And by the way, let me just say this too. A lot of our contention for the faith 
is going to be among the Lord's people. We're not fighting them, per se. We're fighting error. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, right? But against spiritual powers. And so a lot of the practical carrying out of contentions, whether people in this church or outside of it, is going to be with people that are Christian people. Uh, You're going to cross swords sometimes with your brothers and sisters in the Lord. And that's not always a bad thing. Remember it says in the Proverbs, iron sharpeneth iron. What's he talking about? Okay, there's a healthy realm where that's true. But all right, principle number two. In fact, we're not even going to turn there. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this when we've been there recently. Is what's contained in Romans 14 through 15, 7. The principle of recognizing what the Bible refers to as doubtful disputations. Now, if you weren't here and you don't feel like you have a good grasp on Romans 14, you can go to our website. There's five messages, doubtful disputations, uh, one through five. And it's talking in depth about this principle. And uh, basically, here's the gist of it. Uh, we have to learn the difference. And, and listen, this is not easy either. You see, a lot of these areas are a product of Christian growth, and it's hard to draw the line sometimes, isn't it? How many of you have perfectly arrived? None of us. But Romans 14, the burden of the passage is teaching us to recognize the difference between plain biblical teaching and conviction and the specifics of how the Lord is leading each of us as individuals. Now, God does not contradict His Word. You have somebody that says, well, uh, I'm going this way, and you show them just plainly from the Scriptures. Did this ever happen to anybody besides me? Uh, You're going the wrong way. Yeah, but I prayed about it. Uh, Can you say recipe for disaster? What's the authority? Your feeling? Some impression you got? Uh, So God does not lead according to His Word, ever. He can't contradict Himself. And not everything fits into Romans 14. There are a lot of things for the Christian that are unquestionably non-negotiable. At least if you believe the Word of God. Okay, however, let me say this also. It is impossible to have a growing church with people at multiple levels of growth, with different spiritual gifts, with vastly different backgrounds, with different personalities, and not have Romans 14 kind of differences. That can't happen. I'd remind us there the passage in Romans 14, what examples he uses. He uses diet and days, and we read that and think, eh, you know, what, what, that's not really that big of a deal to us, but you have to remember what the early church consisted of. You could not take two Christian people groups that were any more different and throw them together than Jew and Gentile. You really couldn't do that. And something as simple as diet and days, uh, what you're doing on Saturday morning, for instance, had the potential to cause serious disaster. As again to the Jew... Uh, The Mosaic Law was in the warp and woof of his being. So was circumcision. You remember this discussion from there? You know, to the the Jew, it was the the filthy Gentile dogs that were uncircumcised. And to the Gentile, it was a form of body mutilation, which they found reprehensible. So even that one area was a huge thing to contend over. And I would point out again, the Lord brought Jew and Gentile together at the beginning on purpose. Uh, Do you think the Jerusalem church struggled ever with the superiority complex? Now, the Bible doesn't tell us that, but let me illustrate. That was the first church there was. It was up into the thousands very quickly. Uh, At least at the beginning it seems to imply for several years it was predominantly or exclusively Jewish. And it was located in the city of David, where the eyes of the Lord were upon it, Jerusalem. Uh, do you think anybody from that assembly ever struggled meeting with a place like Corinth? You know, your church, I get there's a good thing or two going on, but look, I'm Jewish, I'm from Jerusalem. I mean, we're the first church. You know what I'm saying? 
And all these kinds of things that came out of that controversy. Friends, the applications, though, are much broader than the Jew-Gentile paradigm. And I think, once again, the fact Paul used over 20% of the practical section of Romans to deal with that one area shows how important it is uh, to the Lord. Remember the six questions we talked about there? And there were questions we can ask ourselves when sorting through some of this. Am I fully persuaded? In other words, what's my scriptural reasoning process to get to where I'm at? It's a good question to ask yourself or somebody else. Well, this is what I do. Hey, how'd you get to there biblically? It's a good question. That's part of sharpening iron. But I need to ask myself, do I have a biblical reasoning process for what I do? Uh, Am I honestly doing this unto the Lord, the internal motivation? Uh, Will this pass the test at the judgment seat of Christ? I mean, I can pretend it's going to now, but we all know everything's going to get drug out in the open, so why not deal with it now? Uh, Am I causing others to stumble? Am I damaging and weakening others by my position on this? By the way, if the answer is yes, that should bother us. Am I doing this by faith, or do I have a clear conscience before the Lord? And number six, am I doing this strictly to please myself or for the good of others? See, all of those questions help us to kind of hem us in to a right understanding of these type of areas. But friends, listen, there are areas in a healthy church. In fact, I'm going to say this. There are always areas in a healthy church where two passionate, different opinions among sincere Christians can both be right. I'm not talking about different views of Christ here. I'm talking about lesser areas. Or they at least need to be left alone for a while. Because they're not even close to being a weightier matter. So, contending over those types of things is a misguided type of zeal. Sometimes that can become basically fire in the cannon at my own army. Now, people sometimes will say of fundamentalists, they're the only ones that shoot their own wounded. Now, uh, usually they mean that if somebody's pointing out error, so it's usually an error when somebody's saying that statement. But there can be among the Lord's people sometimes a tendency to do that. We have to draw the line where it needs to be drawn. I would say Satan would love nothing more than to tear apart any church in the world that's a real church over non-issues. He would love to tear it apart over big issues. But can you just think of the hounds of hell cackling if he destroys an assembly over something that's not even important? Some of you know the story of a church I preached in years ago. I know several dear people from there. Split right down the middle over wearing wedding rings and the celebration of Christmas. I get there's different passionate opinions on that. Fine. And by the way, if you differ from me on that, I'm not even going to try to talk you out of it. I don't care that much on that issue. Can passionate opinions exist? Sure! Is that worth splitting a church over? I'm sorry, that's ridiculous. Totally ridiculous. Now in response to that type of issue, Paul says in verse 10 of that chapter, But why dost thou judge thy brother? Or why dost thou set it not? Or why, In other words, why do you treat your brother as unimportant now? Because of this difference. For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. So here's a good self-test to ask ourselves. Remember, I'm not talking about major doctrinal areas here. But are there... Can you, personally, are you able to tolerate anybody disagreeing with any of your strong opinions and ideals? Or does that automatically put up a wall? If it does, you're probably pushing on the door of actual legalism. And friends, listen, this is a danger for any of us. Remember the need for balance. Uh, The L word is thrown at fundamental churches a lot. Most of the time it's not earned, but it can be. Legalist. All right, principle number three. Uh, Turn to Luke 22 with me, if you would. Luke 22. We'll read verse 
31 here in a minute. I want to talk about the principle of going to prayer as a first resort. Do you honestly believe sitting here this morning what James says, that the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much? And do you honestly believe that in the prayer closet, God is willing to move seeming mountains of impossibility that He's not going to move any other way? Do you believe as a Christian that you should wield far more clout in secret than you do in public? Do you primarily lean upon the Holy Spirit to convict and change lives, or do you believe you can simply argue somebody into spiritual growth? And friends, one way that's proven, what is your first resort when you see a problem? I mean, as a general rule, I know some conversations just happen, but as a general rule, is there time taken to lay this out before the Lord? I think what the Lord says to Peter here is just tremendous, and I doubt Peter ever forgot this. You've got to remember here, this is right after the who is the greatest argument. Remember that? And when the Lord again patiently teaches the humble servant that humble servanthood is the pathway to true greatness. And so here you got Peter on one hand, the leader of the disciples, right in the mix, arguing, hey, look, I'm the greatest. All of you know that. Come on now. I'm the loudest. Doesn't that make me greatest? You just hear him going back and forth. And the Lord, of course, instructs them that true greatness lies in servanthood, which is the example Christ set. Look at verse 31. And the Lord turns to Peter. He uses his old name. By the way, when he uses the name Simon, he's usually saying, you're in trouble. <laughs> uh, he told him, I'm going to change your name to Peter, a stone. I'm going to make you like a rock in character. And when he says, Simon, <laughs> that's a warning flag. He says, Simon, Simon. Remember the Lord repeats things twice. This is divine emphasis, like verily, verily. Simon, Simon. <laughs> you who's acting like your old carnal self, you who's acting like your old carnal self, comma, let me tell you something. The Lord had been burdened for this vacillating disciple. And see, the Lord knew some behind-the-scenes information. Look what he says. Satan hath desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat. Tell me, scholars, what Old Testament book does that remind you of? Remember how Job starts? Uh, basically, here's what the Lord's telling Peter. Peter, Satan's trying to do the same thing to you as he asked to do to Job. Remember that book, Peter? Who did Satan desire of? It had to be God. It's the only one he can desire that of. And he's saying, Peter, he wants to have you and put you through the sieve. And he wants to see if anything genuine even remains. Remember what he's trying to do with Job? Oh, you take away this? He'll curse you to your face. And now the Lord's telling Peter, hey, listen, the devil's going to do the same thing to you. He wants to winnow you down to nothing to prove you're a total fraud, Peter, Simon. Well, the Lord knows Peter's in tremendous danger. But look what he says to him. Verse 32, I have prayed for thee. Not I will. I have. And you can bet this was no dear father fix Peter, amen. A time was spent agonizing in secret before a word of warning was ever spoken. Now I realize that can't always happen. But as a general rule, think about it. If the sinless and perfect Son of God, fully indwelt by the Holy Spirit in unhindered fellowship, thought this was so vital, what about us? He had no sin of his own to confess. He had no need to examine his own motivations. He had no need to see if his perception was correct. But part of laying aside the exercise of his divinity... And becoming fully human was a total reliance upon the power of the Holy Spirit. And friends, one of the cardinal ways he demonstrated that was something like this. I'm not even going to warn Peter until I've pled for him in secret. Same thing basically we're instructed to do in Romans 8. 
Rely upon the Spirit of God. How many times do we really seek to fix the blemishes of others in the energy of flesh? Friends, that proves a lot of things. Sometimes it proves we're more concerned about our opinion than anything else. And it also can prove that we don't think we need spiritual power to accomplish spiritual good. It's okay, Lord, I got this one. If Jesus didn't think that way, why should I? Why should you? Look what he prayed. He didn't pray, Peter, I've prayed for you that you'd get what you deserve, you arrogant, self-centered, carnal sack of hot air. You, But that thy faith fail not. Think about this. You remember, Peter's going to deny this. Oh, I'm fine. The Lord knows what's happening behind the scenes, realizes the ramification of what's going to happen, understands Peter's danger, spends time in secret, warns him. Peter essentially doesn't listen. And then the Lord's telling him, you have an advocate when you go forward still. I'm praying that your faith doesn't fail. And uh, when you get up, you see, when he says, when thou art converted, he's not talking about saved. He's talking about when you're converted back to spiritual sanity of actually listening to what I'm telling you. When you're converted, strengthen your brethren. Really quite a gracious prayer on behalf of somebody that's essentially calling him a liar. That's not going to happen to me. Personally, I think it's a good general principle. You and I, as a general rule, have not earned the right to confront a person's error until we've spent time in secret bringing them and yourself before the Lord. Most of the time, we should be able to honestly say, I have prayed for thee. And you have an advocate going through this. All right, number three, part of praying. Turn to Matthew 7. Part of that same kind of stemming from that. And I just, you know, if you've been around conservative churches for any length of time, you hear Matthew 7 and you think, oh boy, uh, because you know the first verse of that is misused ad infinitum, as though you should never talk negative about anything. That's not what he's saying. Uh, but what he's warning against is the wrong kind of judgment. Well, principle number four is honestly avoiding hypocrisy. I mean, you think, of the, think of the crowd gathered. You've got the Sermon on the Mount. You've got thousands of people of all walks of life. You've got flagrant sinners. Uh, you've got people in the middle that hold themselves as moral. You have the religious peacocks, the Pharisees and the Sadducees with their little rolled phylacteries and face all gaunt like they sucked on a lemon. And that equals spirituality in their mind, you know. I'm fasting. Please don't speak with me. I'm so near to God I can't bear with mortals, you know. That was their demeanor. And so you have this mixed crowd the Lord's talking to. And uh, no doubt included in that audience was a goodly number of religious people who were masters at nitpicking everybody's faults. Now, uh, some of them probably fancied in their mind that Jesus is going to show them special favor because of their supposed zeal in setting everyone straight. But I wonder what they were thinking when he launched into this part of the sermon. He's putting the burden on self-examination. He's asking them as individuals. Basically two questions. Why and how? (laughs) Look at the first question. Why? Verse 3. Why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye? Uh, The word behold is fixed gaze. And a mote was like a a speck. You know when you uh, thresh the grain and the chaff would blow away? A moat was like the little speck of grain that would get stuck, the husk. And he's saying, why are you, pointing to this crowd, fixed your, why do you have a fixed gaze on the microscopic speck in your brother's eye? Well, at the same time, you consider not the beam that's in thine own eye. Beam was a squared off timber. You get the mental picture? Why are you staring at this speck of husk in somebody's eye and you have a a telephone pole sticking out of yours? That's the why. 
And then the how. And uh, how wilt thou say to thy brother, let me pull the mote out of thine eye, and behold, a beam is in your own eye. Can you, I mean, can you, isn't that a humorous picture? You've got this guy with this 12-foot 6 by 6 sticking out of his eye socket. I mean, every time he turns around, people have to duck. And, and he's going up to somebody saying, here now, now stand still. I've got I to gotta get this out. And it, it's supposed to look humorous. That's the point. And he's saying, how in the world are you going to remove that when you have this? <laughs> and uh, notice in verse 5, he doesn't say don't point out your brother's error, but he says, first cast the beam out of thine own eye. And then shalt thou see clearly to cast out the mote out of thy brother's eye. So in other words, a readiness to deal with our own sin and deficiencies and hypocrisy first gives a clear perspective at helping others. Now turn that around. The opposite is also true. An unwillingness to deal with myself first gives me a skewed perspective in plucking other people's eyeballs. So he's saying, consider your ways from God's perspective and not man's. Isn't it true we are by nature, we are so much quicker to discern a small fault in somebody else than a larger one in ourselves? If you're a human being this morning, born of the lineage of Adam, this is you I'm talking about. This is our flesh. This is the nature of the flesh to act this way. So we ask ourselves, are there areas where I'm doing the exact same thing in principle, even though I may consider it different? Fundamentally, is this the same thing in the sight of God? Am I making a big deal out of their relatively minor struggle while minimizing my own? So he's not saying don't confront. He's saying confront with clear eyes. So did the Lord have to search his own heart first? No, but you and I sure do. Lord, give me perspective. How about this one? Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy 2, verse 24. <clears throat> I'm calling this the principle of having the proper attitude in confrontation. Now listen to these words, 2 Timothy 2, verse 24. And the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient, in meekness instructing those that oppose themselves, if God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. Now I hope when you read that you're asking uh, one question concerning how that uh, dovetails with Jude's words. That's a question you ought to be asking. Remember, Jude says, earnestly contend or put in effort fighting for the faith. Paul says the servant of the Lord must not strive or fight. Okay, so uh, what's the deal? Is there a contradiction between the two? Is Paul just nicer than Jude? Well, obviously not. First of all, the primary application of this passage is to pastors... But the basic principles are the same for all of us. All right, back to the seeming contradiction, though. Jude, when he says, earnestly contend for the faith, is talking about the burden behind the contention, the necessity of it, the agonizing effort that goes into it, the, the fact that it's, it must happen. But however, in keeping with the idea that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against spiritual enemies... Paul, when he says the servant of the Lord must not strive, is talking about outward disposition of the servant of the Lord while contending for the faith. It says must not strive. That word, in fact, that particular Greek word for strive is used four times in the New Testament, always in a negative sense. But here's what he's saying. The servant of the Lord, in dealing with people drawing his spiritual sword... 
He should not have a constantly combative disposition. He must not be argumentative, short-tempered with disagreements. He should be able to calmly discuss even major conflict without going through the roof. Not sharp, short, insulting, dismissive, puffed up. So the necessity, the burden behind, yes, fight for the faith. Uh, Do we deal with apostates with severity? You better believe it. But most disagreements are not in that category. And he's saying the servant of the Lord must not have a combative disposition. Always looking like some bulldog, always looking for somebody and something to bite. But be gentle unto all men. Friends, notice it doesn't say only the lost, only Christians you agree with. Be gentle to who? All men. Gentle means mild, kind, patient, careful. What does a gentle disposition show? It shows you actually care about the person, not simply winning the debate. It shows the truth does not begin and end with you. It shows you're aware of how much gentleness and patience the Lord has shown on your behalf. I mean, if you stop and think every week about how patient the Lord's been with you, and then you realize you don't even see a fraction of a scintilla of an iota of what the Lord really sees. Wouldn't that do us good to think that way? When we... Uh, relate to others. A gentle disposition shows that you recognize who the real enemy is. But it's not people. It's, it's not flesh and blood. I told you parents many times, again, I'm going to keep sounding this horn. You have got to take pains to make sure, especially your teenagers, understand You are a co-laborer in the same war, not fighting them. They have got to understand that. And all of us in that age frame, I think, have a tendency to not understand that. All right, same passage, sixth principle. Okay, showing patience over time, leaving room for growth. So biblically contending for the faith recognizes the time element that most changes are not going to happen overnight. I mean, do you expect uh, somebody to instantly change their viewpoint on a particular area just because you said something? I'll admit, when I first started preaching, now believe me, I like people doing something about the message, don't get me wrong. But I used to get downcast when I preached the message and there wasn't this instantaneous reaction. You know what I've learned to appreciate more? Someone comes back three, four, five, six weeks later and says, I've really been chewing on what you said. And I've been running it through the Scriptures. I was wrong. You know why I enjoy that? Because they're doing it because the Lord's leading, not simply because I said Friends, listen, if we convince somebody to our position and they're changing it just because it's us, we haven't won anything. Haven't really helped them. I mean, sometimes, yes, sometimes there ought to be a very quick change of mind in some areas, but most of the time that's not realistic. It's actually healthy when a person's confronted about a particular error. And after prayerfulness and self-searching and They sort it out for a while and they're convinced by the Scriptures. Remember what the Bereans did with Paul? Paul's teaching there day after day after day after day after day. What did they do? They searched the Scriptures daily, whether these things were so. And they were commended for that. I'll tell you, one of my greatest thrills as a pastor, I have meetings meetings with people, and I do this all the time, but I've seen some major victories won. And somebody will come with a position that's just reprehensible. And I want to jump out of my skin at first. And we'll talk through it. And I'll say, all right, here's the biblical reasoning why I think you're in error. But many times I'll tell them, listen, let's pray about this. I'm going to take you before the Lord in secret for a few weeks. 
And let's revisit this. And I'll tell you, seeing that person forsake their sin, there's scarcely anything more exciting than that. Because the Lord has done the work. And you know what happens? It sticks. It stays. But it's not necessarily a microwave fix. Look what it says. Must be gentle and apt to teach. Now again, that is a a qualification primarily of pastors, but it's applicable to all of us in some degree. That means able to patiently and gently apply the Word of God in the situation in such a way that the mind is changed eventually by the Holy Spirit. You see, there's a vast difference between that and proof texting somebody. Uh, I trust you'll understand what I mean. Sometimes verses can be used like a hand grenade. Boom! There. Now listen to what I said. Again, there's times for that. But to be able to teach, to instruct, to where they, by the leading of the Holy Spirit in their life, forsake sin and come onto the page of the rites. Now that's a spiritual victory. So it says, patience, not merely one conversation, but over time, not demanding instantaneous results in most cases. In meekness instructing. And what's meekness? Uh, meekness is power under control. Rest in the sovereignty of God. Able to deal with people's vacillation while remaining constant. I mean, you ever dealt with a person that you swear they're at a civil war within themselves? What does he mean when he says, in meekness with those that oppose themselves? They're poster children for Romans 7. They're vacillating. They're going back and forth. And one day they tell you, it's just so wonderful. I see the light. I know I'm going to change. And the next day they've thrown it out and it keeps doing this. Meekness. Instruction. What are we waiting for? If God, peradventure, will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. It's not that human will has no part in it, but it's saying we wait for a power with a capital P to do the work. I can't change hearts, neither can you. And if it's not done at the heart level, it's not really done. By the way, also, many times what appears to be the real problem is just a symptom. And friends, learning to combat the sin nature doesn't happen overnight, does it? How many of you here have ever confessed a sin you were going to turn from it the last time and you didn't last a week? What was the problem? You say, I was sincere. Probably were. But you weren't applying Romans 6 and 7 and 8 properly. That's why you lost. But friends, that takes time to learn to war like that. Think about the Great Commission. Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. Now we could say, we've got Christian fellowship and discipleship figured out here at Berean Baptist Church. And uh, what we did is go through the New Testament and we took every command of Christ and of the Apostles... We made an exhaustive list and we printed it out and we give everyone a copy when they walk in the door and we say, well, there, we've obeyed the Great Commission. I've taught you to observe everything you commanded. There's your list. Yeah, but I'm struggling with section 4, paragraph 3, line 2, end of problem. Next question. (laughs) Why doesn't it work that way? Friends, it takes a lifetime to learn to grapple with and to apply these principles. Fighting the good fight of faith is a lifetime learning experience and every one of us is under construction that's never going to stop. You can't put shingles on a building with no trusses yet. Line upon line, precept upon precept, weightiest matters first. And everybody's in a slightly different place when we intersect their life. Principle number seven will be done. Not with the series, but done for today. Turn to Galatians 6. Galatians 6. Chapter 1. 
verse 1. Galatians 6, 1, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if any man think himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceiveth himself. What does it mean to be overtaken in the fault? Overtaken means to be suddenly seized, like a trap's laid for you. He says, here's a brother or sister, Christian person you know. They're suddenly seized upon by what he calls a fault. Fault is a very general word. It could mean something uh, intentional or something unintentional. It can refer to a sin issue. It can refer to a doctrinal issue, or or both. Sometimes those do intersect. So he's saying if a brother is suddenly seized and overcome by an error that, that is visible, here's how you deal with it. Is it time for a church wide dog pile? Everybody just climb on. Somebody says, wait a minute. You know, Paul in Romans 15, 14. Didn't he commend the Romans for being able to admonish one another? Uh, Yes, he did. But he also commended their balance, that they were full of goodness and knowledge. See, he commended their perspective, their understanding, and said, as a general rule, the people were able to neuthetically counsel one another. I want to point out, first of all, for starters in this, the goal of this confrontation, what is it? Restoration. Not merely fix or win or convince, it's restoration. The goal is to help them get to the place where by the power of the Holy Spirit, they repent of their error and are brought back on board with God and in fellowship with His people. That's the goal. But notice, dealing with this is not just committed to the masses. Not everyone should be getting involved, at least at this point. You compare Matthew 18, there's times when the entire church does get involved. This is not one of them yet. Look what he says. Ye which are spiritual. I would wager, if I could read thoughts right now after after what I just said, There's various reactions to that in your mind. Some of you hear ye which are spiritual and you're thinking that that's that's just, that's not me. Some of you might be thinking, "I, I think that is me. Neither one of those are necessarily wrong. Obviously somebody has to fit into this category or you wouldn't be saying it. But what I want to illustrate is our reaction to that, our feeling on that is really inconsequential and doesn't prove anything. Here's the challenge. What is the biblical definition for the word spiritual? What does that mean? Let me say what it's not. If you go into society and say, are you a spiritual person? Oh boy. By the way, it's not always a bad question to ask. That'll really get you into somebody's mind, what they're thinking a lot of times. Uh, Being spiritual is not visions, Uh, Praying and feeling intense emotional impressions. Crying all the time at prayer and testimony meetings. Breaking down into a blubbering mass. Any spiritual discussion. It's not uh, noise and boisterous declarations. That is not biblical spirituality. Uh, Being spiritual biblically is not the same as having been a Christian for a long time. Uh, Now, hopefully there's a correlation, but not necessarily. A new believer can actually be very spiritual. An old believer can actually be quite carnal. It doesn't mean being raised in the church or a Christian home. Being spiritual does not mean knowing a tremendous amount of Christian teaching. That can help, but knowledge 
does what else? Puffs up. He's not saying knowledge is bad. He's saying knowledge heaped on top of carnality only produces pride. That's what he's saying. Being spiritual is not the same as having high standards. Standards have their place, but they don't equal spirituality. A person can have a very extensive list of do's and don'ts and be carnal to the core. Being spiritual is not being talented. Have you ever done that? You, you sit somewhere and here comes Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so and they sing a solo. They sing, O Sacred Head Now Wounded. And they just drop jaws. You know, people are just sitting there stunned by what they just heard. Or uh, here comes a visiting preacher so-and-so with his evangelistic team and just holds everybody spellbound with his oratory. His illustrations are hilarious or they make you cry. He moves the audience. They're hanging on every word. And the tendency is to think talent equals spirituality. The person that sings like that, they're spiritual. The guy that's that gifted with oratory, he must be spiritual. None of those are accurate. A person can be talented and spiritual or talented and carnal. Bible spirituality is being controlled by having a submission to the Spirit of God. The word spiritual means non-carnal. And it goes without saying, we're talking about a person who belongs to Christ, first of all. Somebody standing, if they're not saved, is dead in trespasses and sins. They are not spiritual. Not in the Bible sense. But even among Christian people, a spiritual person is somebody who, who, who displays the evidence of being mostly controlled by the Holy Spirit. Now listen, it's no accident this particular discussion happens right on the heels of chapter 5. What's the discussion in chapter 5? The fruit of the Spirit. Now notice the flow of thought, beginning in verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these. He says, the outflow of our fallen nature is clearly seen. That's what manifest means. I find this list amazing. Here's why. It kind of presents itself like a sandwich. And here's what I mean. Basically sandwiched on both sides of these works of the flesh, you find what we would coin as the big sins. What's the works of the flesh look like? Adultery. Fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft. Boy, that's an ugly list. And then you go to the end of the list. Murders, drunkenness, revelings, being the consummate drunken party animal. That's a work of the flesh. But look in the middle. Hatred. A hostile disposition where it shouldn't be. <coughs> Variance. Uh, that's arguing. Emulations. Uh, emulations actually come from the word heat. In other words, trying to be like the Lord tipping over the tables in the temple in the wrong place, the wrong time, with the wrong people, and for the wrong reason. It's misplaced zeal. Wrath. A fierce anger, clenched teeth, outbursts of anger. Strife, that's a selfish ambition. Sedition, that's wrongful separations. Heresies, rival factions and divisions. And the Lord takes that whole list sandwiched in between what we would consider the big rocks in the pond. And He says, those are the works of the flesh. And they're manifest. In fact, there's a brutal warning given in verse 21. Now this is not saying anybody who commits any of these is just lost. No, it's talking about a habitual lifestyle. They which do such things, those that display no repentance on an ongoing basis and manifest total carnality all the time without change, he says, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Then you have uh, verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit, the evidence of being controlled by the Spirit. 
No, we have a list of a different sort, don't we? Verse 24, They that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. Maybe you read that and think, well, well, have I? That's the wrong question. Have crucified is a point time past tense verb. This is not a position, something telling you to do. This is telling you if you belong to Christ, your sin nature has been crucified. The power has been broken. It's like Romans 6, 1 through 3. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer there? And you say, well, I, I feel so alive to sin. Yes, you do. But theologically, when you came to Christ, the death knell was sounded against your sin nature. And now God's telling you, live by faith according to what He's made you. You see, sin comes and says, oh, you have to do this. Nuh-uh. I'm crucified with Christ. So it's a positional statement. And then... Uh, Verse 25, he's saying, this is true of you, now walk accordingly. If you live in the Spirit, then walk in the Spirit. Remember the pattern in the epistles? Theological truth followed by practical life. Why? Because Christianity makes you something and then tells you to live according to what God has done. The false religion uh, works just the opposite of that. Verse 26, not desiring vain glory, protecting some kind of image and provoking one another. Now, just verse 22. What does spirituality look like? Look at verse 22, just the first few. Love. It's a supernatural, sacrificial preoccupation with the needs of others. Joy. Not not being the slap-happy clown. But it's an abiding happiness based on who God is. You see, spiritual joy can be constant. Do you know why? Because it always has an eye on the one who can't change. A spiritual joy doesn't get so overwhelmed with the negative that it loses its view of the goodness and power of God. Uh, How about peace? Long-suffering. The ability to bear along with people, to put up with things. Gentleness. And we could keep going. I realize there's no easy dividing line here. It's not like people walk in the door here and they pick up their name tag. Hi, I'm Frank and I'm spiritual. But it's putting the burden on the individual. Ye that are spiritual. So he's saying this controversy arises. You see a severe blemish in somebody. Before you dive in, ask yourself the question, do I manifest the fruit of the Spirit as a general rule in a way that other people see? And friends, listen, what Paul's saying is if you do not stay out of it, in most cases. I know there's things put on our plate we have, we have to address. But he is putting restrictions on who dives into these kind of problems. Can I just be blunt? And listen, we can go through seasons of this. It's not like you're spiritual and you stay there for life. You can go through seasons where you're carnal. You've yielded to the flesh enough. You're manifesting carnality. Well, if that's the case, what do we do here? Friends, if a person's dominated by the flesh and they dive into this kind of situation, it just makes the problem worse. A problem with the flesh doesn't need more flesh dumped on it. It's like saying the grass is on fire. Quick, grab me that bucket of gasoline so I can put it out. It's just going to spread it. Friends, the Lord's not being unkind here, by the way. Neither is Paul. But he's exhorting us to be careful. He says, do it in the spirit of meekness, which is also one of the fruit, ninefold fruit of the Spirit. Meekness, gentle humility, power under control, a rest in the sovereignty of God. As somebody who's aware of their own pathetic frailty, they're willing to listen, they're willing to be accused without exploding. 
They know how to still emanate warmth even when a problem's being worked through on this kind of level. And he says, considering thyself. Anytime we go to rescue somebody from an error, he's saying, you better be very aware of your ability to fall just as far, just as quick. He's not trying to give us an unreasonable fear, but he's trying to give us a healthy fear. So the goal is uh, restoration. The attitude is meekness. The qualification is a manifestation of the fruit of the Spirit. Realizing our own great danger of falling into the same or worse sin. And he's saying, if these aren't honestly present, think twice about diving into every situation. But friends, here's the good news. How long do you think it takes somebody to go from carnal to spiritual in their walk? You see, here's where we have to delineate between Christian growth and being spiritual. Christian growth is a product of time. It's a product of instruction. It's a product that's going to be a process. Spirituality is the Romans 12.102 yieldness to the Holy Spirit that can happen now. That's why I say somebody can be a very new Christian and still manifest the fruit of the Spirit. Because why? They're in a right adjustment to the Spirit of God. But the glorious thing about that, if you belong to Christ, you can be there today. But it's going to take some honest, hard self-examination. You're sitting here this morning, and maybe a lot of what I said didn't have a lot to do with you. Can you tell me? Say, oh yes, my sins are forgiven. I belong to Christ. I would ask, how do you know that? If your answer is something you performed, you need to examine your answer. I belong to Christ because I was raised in a church. So is the devil. I belong to Christ because I'm sincere. I pay my taxes. Never shot anybody. Never gone to prison. Wrong answer. Or can you say, I belong to Christ because I became convinced by the Word of God that I was a doomed, hell-bound, filthy rebel, a monstrosity in the universe that deserved eternal hellfire and damnation. That was me. I was convinced, furthermore, that I could not save myself. I couldn't change my own heart. I couldn't make myself clean. I couldn't make myself a Christian. And I had to ask the question, is there mercy for me? And oh, I learned about a God who wants to reconcile with sinners like me. I learned about a God who has to keep His justice. He has to punish sin. But oh, His... Wrath fell upon another when the Son of God came and died in my place. And now I tell you this morning, I belong to Christ because He wanted to save me. He's able to save me. He came and died on the cross to save me from my sins. And He opens the doorway and He says, Whosoever will may come. Uh, my wife and I were talking this week. I find it amazing. Paul said in Galatians, that if he were to preach circumcision, the offense of the cross would cease and he wouldn't suffer persecution. And I had to chew on that. Here's why. You could go to a lost world and you could tell them there's something you can do to save yourself. Why you can go in, now think what circumcision meant in the first century. You just carry out this external rite. It's going to be horrible. You're going to hate it. It's going to take you weeks to recover. But if you just do that, why, God will accept you. And Paul says, if I told people that, I wouldn't even be persecuted. But you come to people and you say, there is one way of salvation. There is one name by which we must be saved. You are lost. You are depraved. Your only hope, sir or madam, is the grace of God freely given to wretched sinners without excuse. And you tell mankind that message and they ruffle their feathers and they become enraged and they want to throw you in prison. 
Friends, this is why the gospel is offensive, because it runs contrary to human nature. The gospel arrests a proud little man on his throne of his little mini-kingdom and says, You are a usurper. Get off the throne. There's one that belongs there and his name isn't you. Have you come to Christ? Your eternity rests on that decision. And friends, listen, nobody can believe for you. You don't go to heaven on anyone's coattails, being raised in a pastor's home. Christian parents tell my children often, you are not going to heaven on my back. I can't save you. Don't you dare think, just because you're a pastor's child, that all is well with you. No! You're the same sinner as everybody else. You've got to come the same way. But friends, listen, whosoever will may come. Today can be the day of salvation. If you're a believer, you're wondering. You read the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of the flesh, and it just slices your soul open. May I say you need to let it. Oh, there's a God in heaven ready to forgive you as a parent. You see, wrath is past if you're a child of God. But He wants more than just to take you to heaven. You know, He wants fellowship. Friends, the door to God is only locked from the outside. You and I do it by a refusal to bow. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your glorious truth. Thank You, Lord, there is a Savior. I thank You, Lord, for the glorious message of the cross that destroys human pride, that takes away all boasting. Father, I glory in the fact that You've crafted a way to save the souls of sinners while retaining Your perfect integrity and by giving it freely that You might receive all the praise for all time and eternity. I pray, Lord, if there's one here that's not come through that doorway, that they'd be struck down with utter terror at what Your judgment looks like. The fact that it's eternal. That is perfectly just. Lord, the fact that the little dirty sins that they thought were hidden, you not only see, but because you're eternal, you're there watching it right now. Oh God, I pray your fear would fall on those who don't know you for their own good, that they might flee from the wrath to come and come into the one safe haven of Christ. Father, I pray for those of us who do know you, And we'd be open before you, clothed with humility, militant, Lord, against apostasy, earnestly defending the faith and contending for the faith, but yet having a balanced view, being careful. Thank you, Lord, for your patience with us and that you're going to keep helping us to grow. In Jesus' name, amen.